Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Loose Ends, a Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 25, Holzinger, Distractions in 34 Seconds. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. I do accept ownership of all thoughts and opinions in this podcast. I'm joined again this week by Jeff Johnson, solicitor who has been acting pro bono for Max Seeker since 2018. Just a reminder of where we have been since Jeff joined us. In episode 22, he detailed his background and how he came to be involved in this case. He told us of his preparation of two petitions for pardon, which were delivered to the Governor-General. The Attorney-General refused to refer the first petition to the Court of Appeal with no reason being given. Jeff is awaiting advice on the fate of the second petition. In episode 23, Jeff addressed the Tuesday lie. That was that Max Seeker arrived at the Singh House at 2pm and not 2.20pm. In episode 23, he addressed the Sunday night lie. That was that Max Seeker was home all night and not at the Singh household, murdering the victims. In both episodes, Jeff provided evidence that was not heard by the jury. In this episode, we will be discussing a Court of Appeal ruling, the Holzinger decision, which the Attorney-General was relying on in not referring the petitions and refusing to provide reasons thereof. We also discussed distractions, speculation and the 34-second phone call. Hello, Jeff. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Graham, And you? Yes, very well. It's going to be a hot one today. It is down here too. Mm. Okay, I think we should just get straight into this. I've mentioned this before, but distractions is one of my least favourite words. And I have referred to distractions in earlier episodes. I'm interested to hear your slant on that subject. You have referred to them previously, Graham, and well done. I'll just be adding my voice to what you have said to suggest that, in fact, the evidence of many of the witnesses called by the Crown was just that, speculation and a distraction. In fact, many of them were said to be irrelevant. That's admitted by the prosecutor. Most unusual. In his closing address to the jury, the prosecutor told the jury they had heard from a range of witnesses whose evidence was irrelevant. He says that that revealed the extent of the police investigation. Now, to me, that's just simply a distraction on a large scale. You could have referred to job logs and running sheets, 
and the number of people that had spoken to and drawn that evidence from the lead detective in the witness box. You didn't need to call witnesses whose evidence was irrelevant. How is the jury supposed to identify a range of witnesses called by the Crown whose evidence is said to be irrelevant? There were 99 witnesses called at the trial. Quite a number could fall into the category of irrelevant witnesses, in my opinion. I don't know, but it may have been that Seeker's Defence Council requested some of those witnesses to be called. If so, I find that difficult to justify, but there we go. What I do say, it does not appear to be what the prosecutor told the jury and was not what the judge said in the summing up. The prosecutor's required to call witnesses that can give evidence that is relevant to the guilt or innocence of the accused. Calling a range of witnesses to give irrelevant evidence is more likely, in my opinion, to simply confuse the jury and to distract the jury from the two main issues that mattered in this trial. And they were, one, was there credible evidence that proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker arrived at Grass Tree Close on Tuesday at about 2pm and not 2.20pm as he claimed? And two, was there credible evidence that proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker went to Grass Tree Close on Easter Sunday night and murdered the Singh sibling? That was the crux of the trial. If one accepts what I have said to listeners in the last two episodes of your podcast, not only was there scant evidence to prove those matters beyond a reasonable doubt, but evidence that disproved both was either not disclosed or produced to the court by the Crown. Just a gentle reminder to your listeners, hopefully they stick with me to the end, to hear what I have to say about that 34-second telephone call Max Seeker made to Neilmer on that Easter Sunday night. Wind this segment up, the prosecutor calls a range of witnesses that he admits is irrelevant. Maybe they are dismissed as a distraction and or speculation, but he doesn't call evidence that's clearly relevant to the innocence of Max Seeker. That evidence needs to be heard and reviewed by the Court of Appeal, not to just be dismissed by the Attorney-General as providing no grounds for referral. That's an intriguing concept, Jeff, that prosecutor admits that he called witnesses that are irrelevant. I struggle with that. (laughs) I certainly struggle with it. Let me say again, and I may have said it previously, if I'd been involved in this trial, there's no way that it would have lasted 70 days. Mm. Interesting. All right. You want to talk about the Holzinger decision. Is that the case? Graham, I understand there's some lawyers that might be listening to your podcast. And if your listeners will just indulge me for a little and allow me to comment on the Holzinger case, it might give lawyers that are listening an opportunity to either disagree with me or provide additional insight to the podcast if they wish. And I hope my comments will serve to illustrate my concerns for those that have been wrongfully convicted in Queensland. The reference to the Holzinger case, for those that might be interested in the full text of that decision, is, and I quote, 
Holzinger, H-O-L-Z-I-N-G-E-R, versus the Attorney General of Queensland, 2020, QCA 165. QCA stands for Queensland Court of Appeal. It's a decision of that court handed down in August of 2020. The judgment was delivered by the then President of the Court of Appeal and two appeal court justices who agreed with his reasoning. In essence, that judgment determined the law in Queensland to be as follows, as I read the judgment. A. That Holzinger, and likewise Max Eker, was not a person whose rights were affected by a refusal of a petition for pardon, and therefore, because that petition is linked to sections 672A of the Criminal Code, a refusal by the Attorney General to refer that case to the Court of Appeal for review is not available. B, that the Attorney General is not required to give reasons for the decision not to refer. C, that the correct position in Queensland is not that the Attorney General must refer a case that is legally arguable, but that the Attorney must not refer a case unless he or she is satisfied that it is reasonably arguable. D, that the decision by the Attorney General was not an administrative decision. The Attorney General had an unfettered discretion and could refuse to refer for basically any reason. E. The court also considered that judicial review of the decision not to refer conflict with the principle of finality of judgments. And F. Judicial review of the attorney's decision was not available to challenge the attorney's decision. Graham, the judgment is complex. I agree with that. (laughs) I certainly don't intend to bore your listeners by taking them through the history of the prerogative of mercy, other than to say the court determined that the referral power under Section 672A of the Queensland Criminal Code is directly linked to a petition to the Governor for a pardon. That is the prerogative of mercy. I might say that a petition for pardon dates back to the Dark Ages when kings and queens reigned supreme. Perhaps it should be consigned to the history books and decisions on pardons and referrals for wrongful convictions left to qualified independent tribunals. Anyway, as it stands, it is only by delivering a petition that one then seeks to have the Attorney General consider a referral to the Court of Appeal. However, since the Holzinger decision, the Court of Appeal says that a person has no right to a pardon and therefore is not a person whose rights are affected by a refusal to refer under Section 672A of the Criminal Code. The Attorney-General's decision is not administrative, and consequently judicial review is not available under the Judicial Review Act or otherwise. Confused? Yes. Probably not alone. Now, far be it for me to say that the Court of Appeal was wrong, That may be a question for the High Court. What I am saying at this stage is that if the Court of Appeal was right, then the Lord needs to be changed without delay. The High Court may find the Court of Appeal to have been misguided in Holzinger, 
but they have shown no inclination to get involved to date. In passing, it's interesting to note a comment by three appeal court judges in the New South Wales Court of Appeal in a case called Folbig, F-O-L-B-I-G-G, versus the Attorney General of New South Wales, 2021, NSWCA 44. Those appeal court judges made the following comment in referring to the Holzing decision. It's a paragraph 39 of the New South Wales decision, and the judges said. Just before we get into that, Jeff, the Folbig case, that's Kathleen Folbig, woman convicted of murder of her three or four children, yeah? That, that's the one. Mallard versus the Queen involved an appeal from a case referred to the Court of Appeal under that provision. The Court of Appeal had dismissed the petition. It might be thought curious that a petitioner could enforce in the High Court his legal right to a proper consideration of his petition by the Court of Appeal, but could not have reviewed the refusal of the Attorney-General to refer the matter to the Court of Appeal. These appeal court judges in New South Wales had no need to make that comment. If they did not have concerns about the Holzinger decision, let me assure listeners they would not have included that comment in the full big judgment. They had already decided before making that comment that they had jurisdiction to judicial review application for inquiry on other grounds. The fact that they chose to include the comment on the High Court case of Mallard might be an indication that others of higher legal standing than me find the whole Zinger ruling, the Attorney General's decision not to refer, more than a little disconcerting. And I might add there, listeners are interested to research the Mallard case. It's a fascinating case. It's been going on for years and years. Uh, what was his first name? Graham, I forget just off the top of my head. Mm, so, do, but, so do I. We'll be referring to the Mallard case when we get to the Garden Fork. Okay. Because it certainly has some relevance for me in that regard. Sure. Unfortunately, as I recall, Mr Mallard finally exonerated with respect to his conviction, went to California and then was hit by a hit-and-run driver. It was quite tragic. Andrew Mallard. Andrew, that's the name. Okay. Graham, my concern for the community in Queensland is what I see to be the practical consequences of the Holzinger decision for persons that might have been wrongfully convicted. Bottom line, governments can cover up misconduct and avoid the consequences of substantial miscarriages of justice by simply refusing to refer cases to the Court of Appeal no matter how strong the grounds raised are, justifying a review of the case by the Court of Appeal. Given that, it might be likely that podcasts such as yours and whistleblowers will be needed to expose misconduct, substantial miscarriages of justice and evidence that didn't see the light of day at trial that support assertion of wrongful convictions. And unfortunately, Given the Holzinger case, that might not be enough. The politically appointed Attorney General simply says again. Before I get to that, I've said before and I'll say it again, we have a political person 
deciding on judicial cases. I just can't see that should happen. You know, Graham, that's an insightful comment because it goes back to the extract that I've taken from the Folbig case, those comments by the appeal court judges. One might think they were concerned the decision not to refer by a politically appointed attorney general had more impact than the right of the High Court to send Mm. a case back to the Court of Appeal and say, review this again, such as they did in the Mallard case. Yes, and we all know about politicians. They're focused on getting re-elected, not necessarily on matters that should be heard by a court. So these are the Attorney General's words, but not her voice. No grounds for referral to the Court of Appeal. Although she may not have said the following, one might speculate she was thinking it. The law does not require me to give reasons why, so I won't. Don't bother asking the Supreme Court to intervene because they can't judicially review my decision. Where misconduct or fresh evidence emerges after the appeal process, it just means that it's a case of bad luck, so sorry, nothing you can do. It's hard to see politicians referring cases to the Court of Appeal any longer, no matter how strong the grounds for referral. In reality, they find it politically unpalatable. Do you really think politicians would like to have the intestinal fortitude to refer cases such as the Seeker case to the Court of Appeal when the whole thing a decision permits them to avoid transparency and accountability? Yes, well, we've just been talking about politicians and there's two cases the Queensland government wish would go away. One of them is the Leanne Holland murder and the second one is the Max Seeker case. So how does all this affect the seeker petitions, Jeff? Well, Graham, the first petition was delivered on the 11th of April 2019. There were two supplementary affidavits delivered relating to the enhanced photo of the phone and the testing conducted at Bond University for blackened footprints. I received advice in late November, early December of 2020. The then Attorney General determined that there were quote, no grounds for referral, close quote. I had been informed that, in fact, the Attorney-General had made her decision by mid-year 2020. As is my usual practice, I recorded in writing that conversation. Why the delay in advising of that decision? One might speculate she might have been awaiting the Holzinger decision. Maybe not. But it's open to the Attorney-General to explain the reasons for the delay if she was so inclined. In any event, the result was that in reliance on that decision, she A, refused to refer, B, gave no reasons for doing so, and C, resisted an application for judicial review I took to the Supreme Court early in the following year, and she resisted that application based on the Holzinger decision, full stop. That's exactly what I expected to occur, although I thought I had reasonable grounds that challenged the basis for the Attorney General's decision. I couldn't get to that base because of the Holzinger decision. Now, Graham, if the Attorney General disputes any of the facts and assertions made in this podcast, I'm sure she's always at liberty to explain why those facts and assertions are wrong and why the documents to which I've referred listeners do not reflect what I allege in the petition. 
She's not prevented from disclosing reasons. The law, since Holzinger, simply allows her to avoid accounting for her reason, if any. One might speculate, there's that word. Mm. Does she support, A, the giving on what on its face is false and or misleading evidence to the court? B, the failure to call a trial exculpatory evidence? C, a prosecutor alleging deliberate lies evidencing guilt and not calling relevant evidence disputing that or disclosing to the defence evidence such as job logs that are not referred to in police notes or statements. D, a prosecutor asserting to a jury that a witness lied, example Anna McGovern, without disclosing the existence of evidence from Melena P that clearly conflicts with that assertion. And E, the refusal by Queensland Health to provide information, documents and the case file to allow a review and retesting of the DNA in the Seeker case. Perhaps she can explain why she shouldn't provide answers to those questions. She is the chief law officer in the state, the community's interest being that the innocent not be wrongly convicted. Surely it is the community's right to know the reasons why an attorney general would refuse to refer this case to the Court of Appeal in the circumstances. I've previously asked the Attorney-General, as you know, to join me on this podcast and actually on the Holland podcast. She refused both invitations. I might renew my invitation, but hell may freeze over before she accepts that invitation. We shall see. We will. Graham, now let me just briefly remind your listeners of some matters that you may have dealt with in previous podcasts. Where there is evidence that does not fit the narrative of the police and prosecution, the prosecution dismisses that evidence as a distraction and or speculation. And I just want to outline some examples. One, there was someone at the door at around 8.30pm on the Sunday night. The prosecutor dismisses that, saying to the jury, These are his words, but not his voice. That person was not the killer because there had been later telephone communication between Nilma and the accused. Really? There is no evidence to who that person was. There's no evidence that that person ever left the house. And that person has never come forward. Why? It is beyond belief that after all of the publicity relating to the Seeker case, that the person who was there at 8.30pm on Easter Sunday night would not have come forward and identified themselves. Anyway, that's a distraction. Two, there were no phone calls from the Sings after 11.10pm. Why? We don't know. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. But you can speculate that it must have been because Max Seeker went to the Singh house and killed the Singh sibling. Really? Again? Three. You just dismiss the evidence of Paul S., Boy, you just dismiss the evidence of Karen T. And just to remind the listener, Paul S. was a painter who believed he saw City on the Monday morning, and Karen T. claimed she heard music coming from the house on the Monday night. That's right. And, Graham, there were a number of other witnesses that heard things on the Monday night. There were many people who heard and saw things on that Monday and Monday night around the Singh household. And we'll get to those again just as we progress. And then the prosecutor states that the loss adjuster who gave evidence suggested that the damage to the house had been caused by a significant amount of water over a significant period of time. But the loss adjuster on cross-examination said that that damage could have been caused over a 12-hour period of time prior to the bodies being found in the spa. That certainly doesn't take it back to Easter Sunday night. Sick, that although the clothing seized from Maxica by police did not reveal blood or bleach, the jury should not be concerned because you would not expect the killer to keep blood-soaked clothing. Well, that's speculation and a distraction and the jury shouldn't be concerned. I'd mm. be concerned. What happened to the clothing? How did he get rid of the clothing? How did they disappear? Why is there no blood in his car? Why is there no blood found on him or his or any of his clothing or anywhere in the Singh household in areas where it might suggest Max Seeker was the killer? Just discard it. Seven. So the jury should have expected Max Seeker to have removed his clothes, somehow disposed of them, removed all evidence of blood on his person and car, and driven home. What? Without any clothes on? Come on. And produced no evidence at all of those assertions. Now that is what I call speculation. So it's okay to speculate if it suits the police and prosecution narrative, but if it doesn't, the jury's just told to simply dis- disregard that evidence as a distraction or speculation. The footprints, the spa bath and the garden fork are all interesting, as you realise, Graham. And I won't deal with them here. I'll deal with them in a future episode. Okay. Going on, and this is really important. There were fingerprint impressions outstanding in the house. That is, fingerprints impressions that were not identified. And this is what the prosecutor told the jury in relation to those fingerprints. These are his words, but not his voice. You would not be distracted by those outstanding fingerprints. Why? My recollections are that one of the outstanding fingerprints was on Neilma's bedhead, another one was on her door. Now, that's hardly a distraction, perhaps. 
Have there been any ongoing efforts to investigate those outstanding footprints as required? Probably not. Anyway, they were not max seekers. And also, they did not belong to a large number of people from whom comparison fingerprints were taken. Why would the jury not be able to infer they might have come from the actual killer or killers? Just to advise the listener, the police tracked down every single tradesman who worked on that house when they were building it and eliminated them as leaving those fingerprints. I mean, they tracked down everyone who had been to that house. That's right. And also friends of the siblings, of the Singh siblings. Yes. These fingerprints obviously belonged to somebody who was likely not, not to have been a regular visitor to the house. Yes. Okay. And then we have the partial facial prints, which included ear prints. These ear prints and face prints, Jeff, I personally think they're just crucial. So do I. And I always have since I discovered them. I mean, you've got a facial and ear print so clear when you look at the photographs located on the garage door. And the second one is located on Neilma's door. Now, again, Max Seeker was excluded as a, as a person who might have made those impressions. They were not identified. And again, the prosecutor told the jury not to be distracted by that and not to speculate as to who might have made them. Again, I say, why? Well, let me speculate. May well have been made by the killer or killers. They aligned with the unidentified fingerprints. The jury was urged to not be distracted or speculate simply because it didn't suit the police and prosecution narrative and, as far as I can see, for no other reason. I agree with you. They were crucial parts of the evidence and, in my view, it was open to the jury to infer because they were unable to be identified that they could well have come from that person or persons who actually killed the siblings. Yes. And then, of course, is the evidence of the witnesses that made observations relating to the Monday night, Tuesday morning, but we'll deal with those at a later point in time. There were others, I'm sure, but these will serve to illustrate to you listeners that where evidence was called that didn't suit the police and prosecution narrative, the jury was told to dismiss that evidence as a distraction and not to speculate. I say that was evidence along with the exculpatory evidence not called that supported Max Seeker not being the killer. The jury could have inferred that in what is claimed to have been an exhaustive and wide-ranged investigation. It was open to the jury to infer that the unidentified finger and ear prints supported Max Seeker's innocence. And listeners should not be concerned. I will refer to evidence said to implicate Max Seeker in a future podcast. That is whatever might be left after I finish. So there is this exculpatory evidence that supports a narrative that Max Seeker was not the killer. You just don't call the witnesses. That's the point you're making? Or you dismiss it as a distraction and or speculation, Graham. In winding up this episode, let me take the listeners to what, in my opinion, is a very important piece of evidence. That is the one ring routine. Now, the police and prosecution narrative was that this was a signal that indicated to Max Seeker it was safe to visit Neilma at her home 
and that he then went to Grass Tree Close, where he killed the Singh siblings. At 11.10pm on that Easter Sunday night, Neilma makes a one-ring call to Maxika. I understand there was some speculation that hanging up after one ring prevents the call from being recorded on the telephone account that Vijay Singh paid. Now, that may or may not be so. But in any event, as recorded in the summing up by the trial judge at page 222 of his summing up, his honour confirms that the prosecutor submitted to the jury the following. These are the judge's words, but not his voice. Neilma had utilised the one ring routine at 11.10pm and was unlikely to have done so unless Kunal was asleep so that Kunal could not tell his father that the accused and Neilma were socialising. It's not in dispute that Max Seeker did not rush out of the house to go to Grass Tree Close. No, shortly after the one ring call... He calls Neilma back from the Seeker house phone and that call lasted 34 seconds. He knew she was unwell from the earlier email he'd received. He rang back and spoke to her for 34 seconds, saying it was basically get well, good night, etc. He talks to police about that at a lengthy interview that occurred on the 31st of March 2004 and the trial judge referred to that at page 165 of his summing up where he said the following. These are the judge's words, but they're not his voice. Asked about the arrangements to visit Neilma at the Singh house on Sunday night, he said, I was under the impression I was meant to go, but she wasn't feeling well, so I didn't. He was asked about the single ring by Neilma at about 11.10pm. That would have been the sign to call as always, he answered. As to the content of his 34-second conversation in response, he said that would have been good night, sleep tight, that sort of stuff. Hope you're better. I'm not sure. Zitney asked why he had not told the police the day the bodies were discovered of the arrangements with Neilma for him to go to the Singh house on Easter Sunday night. He responded he was pretty sure that he had told Zitney of the arrangements, adding, however, he was on medication when interviewed. Asked again about his movements on Easter Sunday night, he said he was at home that night and throughout the next morning. One must ask, what other reason is there for the phone call back to Neilma lasting 34 seconds? More on that shortly. Jeff, I'd like to take a moment to discuss the interviews uh, police had with Max Seeker. I've never referred to the police interviews in any episode of the podcast that I've recorded. The reason for that simply because there was nothing significant about them. The police interviewed Max Seeker. They did their job. That's what they were supposed to do. In that first interview, on the afternoon after he found the bodies, he went with police to the Petrie Police Station and he remained there for some 10 hours and they interviewed him over that time in recorded, videotaped interview, as they would and as they should. It's important that they record every witness and obtain every piece of evidence that they can, whether they're a witness or a suspect. It's no secret Max Seeker had a lengthy criminal history at the time of the Singh murders, and he had served a long prison sentence. This was not his first rodeo. He would know 
that he did not need to speak to police. He did not have to speak to police. He would know that he did not have to go to the police station willingly. He would know that he could have a solicitor present in any police interviews. A lot of people know that. Someone who's done prison time and had previous convictions would definitely know that. What did he do? He willingly went with the police, willingly engaged in lengthy interviews with them, and then three days later willingly went back and did a walkthrough or a reenactment of what he did when he arrived at the Singh House on the Tuesday afternoon. On neither of those occasions did he request a solicitor be present. It just strikes me with his background and his knowledge of procedures, he mustn't have been too concerned about the police interviews. Well, no, it might not be a reaction of a person that had just murdered three people. Mm. Now, Graham, my take on the 34-second phone call, we know that Canoel was at home on Easter Sunday night. He may have been asleep, he may not. That's speculation. The prosecutor certainly felt at liberty to submit to the jury. Canal being asleep would have prompted Neilma to use the one ring routine. Why is the immediate question that comes to my mind. Maybe I'm stating the obvious, but why would Neilma be concerned about a normal phone call to Max waking up Canal even if he was asleep? I can make no sense of the prosecutor's submission. Maybe it might make sense if Max Seeker had not called back. Last I checked, my phone does not make any noise when I make an outgoing call. Neilma could have called from elsewhere in the house where it would not have disturbed Canal. She could have said, for instance, Max, don't call me. You might wake Canal. Just come over. Alternatively, Max could have texted saying perhaps see you soon, if the response to the one ring call was to go to Grass Tree Close. That would not have disturbed or alerted Canal, but that's not what happened. Let's see the fact, not speculation or distraction. Max Seeker rang back, spoke to Neilma for 34 seconds. That's a fact. That call might have been likely to wake or alert Canal, so why would Max Seeker call back if, one, he was concerned about waking or alerting Canal, and, two, his response to the one-ring call was to go to the Singh House? The callback was likely to have caused Neilma's phone to ring at the Singh House. That might have been likely to wake or alert Canal. If that wasn't enough, the 34-second conversation certainly might have disturbed a sleeping canal or alerted him to the fact that Neilma was talking to Max. Evidence of phone communications between Max and Neilma show that in most, if not all cases, the follow-ups to the one-ring routine were SMS messages. The response on Easter Sunday night was a telephone call. Max would SMS to say he's coming over. He wouldn't call. Sunday night call was a bit out of character. If Max Seeker intended to go to Grass Tree Close that Easter Sunday night and he and Neilma didn't want to alert Canal, the last thing he would be likely to do in response to the one-ring call would be to call back and risk waking or alerting him. Let's say Canal was asleep. How would Max Seeker know whether or not Canal woke up 
in response to the 34-second phone call or during the time it's alleged he drove to Grass Tree Close when Neilmer and Max are said to be concerned about Canal reporting contact to his father. Why would Max seek a telephone Neilmer? Have a 34-second conversation, risk waking or alerting Canal, and more importantly, why would he then go to the Singh residence not knowing whether or not his telephone had woken Canal or alerted him to Max and Neilmer meeting that night? Makes absolutely no sense to me. In his summing up to the jury, the trial judge told the jury that facts may be proved by direct evidence alone, circumstantial evidence alone, or by a combination of both. And then he told the jury at paragraphs 124 to 126 of the summing up the following. These are his words, but not his voice. To bring in a verdict of guilty based entirely or substantially on circumstantial evidence Guilt should not only be a rational inference, it must be the only rational inference that could be drawn from the circumstances. If there is any reasonable possibility consistent with innocence, it is your duty to find the accused not guilty. This follows from the requirement that guilt must be established beyond reasonable doubt. The only rational inference then, in my submission, to be drawn from the 34-second phone call is that Max Seeker had no concerns about waking or alerting Canal because he decided not to go to the Singh House that night. And that's what he confirmed in that interview on the 31st of March 2004. And to his recollection, that's what he told Zitney on the 22nd of April 2003. There is no rational inference to be drawn from that 34-second call establishing guilt. None, let alone it being the only rational inference to be drawn as per the judge's direction. Again, none. By calling back and speaking with Neilma for 34 seconds, Max Seeker could not have been concerned about alerting Canal. There is no other contact after that 34-second call. That call might have woken Canal or the prosecutor might have been wrong in speculating that Canal was asleep. In any event, that obviously did not concern Max Seeker. Why? Because he did not go to Grass Tree close that night. That 34-second phone call is evidence from which the jury should rightly have concluded Max did not intend to go to Grass Tree close, did not go, and therefore was not guilty of murdering the Singh siblings as alleged by the Crown. These are facts, not speculation, and certainly not distractions. They are facts that strongly support Max Seeker's statements to police that he did not go to the Singh house on Easter Sunday night. And if evidence had been called from the next door neighbour, Lisa Earl, from Claudio Seeker and Marcia Q, that evidence would have also strongly supported what I have just said about the undisputed 34-second callback. Had these submissions with the supporting evidence of those three witnesses been brought to the attention of the jury, no reasonable jury properly instructed, in my opinion, could have been satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker lied when he said he was home all Easter Sunday night and did not kill the Singh sibling. Again, I say, it's the only rational inference to be drawn, and it's a rational 
inference that indicates that Max Seeker was not guilty. Possibly the only rational thing in this whole irrational, sad case, Jeff. <laughs> you may be right, Graham. As you can imagine, going through all of this over not months but years has been disconcerting, to say the least. Oh, yeah, it's been a nightmare. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the blackened footprints, yes? Yeah, I think it's time we did that. And then after that, we'll get on to DNA and we'll get on to the garden fork and the spa bath. But I think next week we'll relate to the blackened footprints and listeners might remember the photo of the phone that I referred to in an earlier episode. We'll examine how that photo is relevant to photos of the blackened footprints. And in addition, I'll deal with more conflicting evidence where it appears that police likely changed their stories to suit the prosecution narrative. Those blackened footprints, Jeff, are, to me, one of the highlights of this whole sad, sorry saga. And I say that not in a good way. I say that these blackened footprints are really disturbing. I can only agree. All right. Well, I think that's it. We're done, Jeff, and we'll talk again next week. Will do. Take care. You too. Thank you. Bye. Please join us next week for the Game Changer, episode 26 of the podcast, where we discuss the blackened footprints in the Singh household. You may recall I previously discussed the footprints in episode 17, which I called Impressions Count. That material is from an investigative viewpoint. In Game Changer, Jeff will take us through the footprint evidence from a legal viewpoint. I've never previously publicly mentioned this. When I was first researching the footprint evidence in the Singh household, for some reason the Shroud of Turin popped into my head. And every time I've looked at the evidence since, that same subject pops up. For those of you not familiar with the Shroud, here is a short description I obtained from the internet. The Shroud of Turin is a length of linen cloth bearing the negative image of a man. Some describe the image as depicting Jesus of Nazareth and believing the fabric is a burial shroud in which he was wrapped after crucifixion. Why did I compare the footprint evidence in the house with that shroud? I'm not sure. I think I considered what I was seeing in the Singh household was almost mystical. I considered naming that episode The Miracle of Grass Tree Close, but did not for obvious reasons. Recently, I have also associated the footprint evidence with the noun Game Changer. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does raise awareness of the podcast and helps others to find the story. If you like the podcast, tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the usual method. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music, before I go, by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.